splendid attendance on this uh, rainy evening. Most times when it rains like this in the average Presbyterian church, you could almost have the meeting in a telephone booth. And <laughs> I'm delighted at this splendid group here this evening. I know that you'll be praying for the services that will be tomorrow night and continuing on through Friday night. And it's only an answer to prayer as God speaks to us through his word and presents his grace and makes that grace's claims upon our hearts that any of us can receive any real benefit. Tonight I want to read one of the most beautiful scenes recorded in all of the four records of the gospel. This is found in Luke chapter 8, chapter 7, verse 36, following. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. Jesus said, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most and Jesus said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace.
Let us all bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that each one of us may be conscious of the presence of Jesus Christ in this place tonight. We thank thee for his gracious promise that he would be wherever two or three were met together in his name. This we know to be the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor, and so there is an end to it. And our Father, we pray that thou wilt make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A very wise commentator on Holy Scripture has told us that whenever we come to this passage of Scripture that I read in your hearing a few moments ago, that we ought always to be very careful to divest our minds of all of our orthodox, good, and sound evangelical notions about Jesus Christ if we want to see just what took place that night in Simon the Pharisee's home. Now, he said that for this reason. In order to understand the events that transpired that evening, we have somehow to be able to look out of the eyes of the people like Simon the Pharisee looking at Jesus and think about him for a moment as they were thinking about him. Now, it has always been a mystery to commentators as to just why Simon the Pharisee ever in the world invited Jesus into his home anyway. We don't really know why he did. We know a lot about Pharisees. We know that as a party they are traceable back to two centuries before the birth of Christ. We know that there are faint tracings of Pharisaical parties all the way back to 528 years before the birth of Christ, at the time that Ezra and Nehemiah went back to restore the walls of Jerusalem. For you see, when they went back, Ezra and Nehemiah demanded a strict and rigid segregation of Jews from Gentiles, and this started a separationist movement. And the word Pharisee literally means a separated one. And a Pharisee is an interesting person for this reason. You see, his relationship to God is often cold and mechanical. It consists only in living rigidly in adherence to a great deal of external law. He could recite verbatim all 150 of the canonical psalms. He could go through the five books of Moses with no great difficulty. He could tell you what the learned rabbis had to say about this and that law. In short, his head was full of divine light, but very often his heart was devoid of divine love. And if you ever want to read what a Pharisee is like before he comes to know Jesus Christ and to have his love in his heart, Paul gives us almost an autobiography of a Pharisee in his great 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. For when he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. He's talking about what he was when he was a Pharisee. When he says that he would be willing to give his body to be burned, 
because of his faith in God, he's talking like a Pharisee. A Pharisee believed just that intensely. But Paul goes on to say that though he do all of these things, so that he have all faith, so that he could remove mountains and have not love, it profits him nothing. And one point of the ministry of Jesus was to show up this fallacy of a religion, of a faith in God that adheres only to externals but does not have any real spirit pulsing through it. And he sought and he seeks to show this about this particular Pharisee. Well, this Pharisee had done like you and I are sometimes prone to do. In a moment of warmth and gaiety, he had invited Jesus to come and take supper in his home. And just like we have sometimes done, he really didn't mean it when he invited Jesus. And so when Jesus finally showed up at his door, he was a little bit embarrassed by his presence. And that happens a great many times. We see someone and we fall into a conversation with them and we say, uh, I want you to be sure and come and see me now. I want you over to my house for a meal. And then one evening they come. And it's all so inconvenient for them to come when they do. Maybe other guests are present. Maybe they come and we wish for all the world that we had kept our mouth closed and had never extended any invitation for them to come there. And I really think this is what happened with Simon the Pharisee. I think that he asked Jesus to come and dine at his house and that when Jesus showed up there, he was really embarrassed by his presence. Now the reason that I think this is very simple. He omitted all of the common courtesies that would have been extended to a guest in an oriental home. He did nothing at all to make Jesus feel that he was welcome. Whenever a guest came into a home such as Simon the Pharisee would have, a home where there would be a patio, a garden-like affair, where there would be a, a pool perhaps, and a garden there, and the people would eat around banquet tables on low couches, and Jesus showed up. And Simon the Pharisee had clear forgotten that he had asked Jesus to come, and he didn't go and greet him at the door. He did not extend any kiss to Jesus as a visiting rabbi should have been extended such a courtesy? No, not at all. No slave came and washed the feet of Jesus. In those days, the roads were just footpaths. They were not surfaced with uh, any form of surfacing material. Whenever it rained, they were liquid pools of mud. And whenever it was dry, they were thick with dust. And the only form of shoes that were worn were just a sole or tied to the foot by a thong of leather, and so people's feet were often dirty and hot, and whenever they came to a home, it was common courtesy for the, the host to go and greet the visitor with a kiss, or to extend his arm upon his shoulders and invite him in. A slave would come quickly and remove his sandals and begin to wash away the dirt or the mud or the dust from his feet, and then another slave would come and take a pinch of, of some type of perfume, perhaps an acre of roses, and place it upon the, the visiting guest's head. All of this was to make him feel welcome. But all of these things had been clearly omitted, and so it's evident that Simon the Pharisee really didn't want Jesus there, although he had desired him to eat with him, says the King James translation, and Jesus had gone. Now let me say this, 
if you had been there or if I had been there. And we were able to tell right away that our host did not want us in his home, that he would not so much as extend his hand to shake hands with us, that he wouldn't even smile or nod to us, that he paid us no attention at all, we would have been so stiff and disgruntled by what was taking place that we would have taken our coat and hat and gone away home in a rage immediately. But Jesus was used to being treated this way by some people. For you see, as I cautioned you in the beginning, you have to be able to look at Jesus in this instance like some of Simon the Pharisee's contemporaries looked upon him. You see, they thought he was half a carpenter and half a prophet. They thought he was just the son of Joseph beside himself. Someone said that he already looked like he was 50 years old when in truth he was uh, barely 30. But he had attracted great crowds of people. Maybe Simon was one of those people who liked to brag about the celebrities that visited his home. And so out of curiosity, he asked Jesus to come. But at any rate, he's not a bit courteous to Jesus once he arrives. Now then, look at the second person who comes on the stage of this drama. We see a woman in the city who is a sinner. The words are flat and cold in our English version, but they actually mean that a woman of notorious immorality in that city, a harlot, a prostitute, a streetwalker, a woman who was known for having been lewd and immoral, this woman makes her way into that circle of people and comes over where Jesus is seated. Now, it must have taken a great deal of courage for her to have gone there. Had she been trained upon polite and formal lines, she would have known better than to enter into such company as this. And it's a dead sense she was not a Presbyterian. No, Presbyterians have too much starch in their souls to go out of the way like this woman did. But she evidently had heard Jesus someplace before. She had heard Jesus. She had heard his voice. And somehow his voice kept haunting her. She kept listening and hearing his gracious words over and over again ringing in her mind and she couldn't get them out of her mind. And when she tried to sleep at night, the face of Jesus loomed up in her dreams. For she saw something in his eyes and heard something in his voice that told her that God could take even a person like she was and make them all over again. Deep down in her heart, crushed by the tempter, there were feelings that were buried that grace could restore. And she kept hoping for all the world that she could see Jesus once again. You know, I think that maybe she was going someplace to fling herself into a river and take her life. Maybe she wanted to be clean again. She realized that her purity was gone. She realized all of this and she was haunted and frustrated by her guilt. But she had heard the voice of Jesus and it gave hope to her soul once more. Now let me remind you of this. We live in a time when such an account as this can hardly be appreciated. We live in a day of a great deal of levity and laxity 
whenever it comes to matters of sex. Two of our prominent national news magazines, both Time and Newsweek, have carried articles that deal with sex in the American life. We are told that anyone who seeks to remain clean and pure anymore is looked upon and frowned upon as some person who is puritanical. Purity is passé. I work in a college where I deal with several hundred young people, and I can testify to the devastating harm that is done to the minds of many young people because they try to follow a code of the world and because that code is no good. I remember reading once of how ermine are captured. You know ermine, an ermine has the whitest fur of any animal known in the world. And over in Europe, the robes of royalty are always lined with ermine because it is a symbol of purity. And I was fascinated once when I read how they are taken away out in the Arctic waste of Siberia, where many of these animals live and where most of them are trapped for their fur. The trappers take them in this unusual way. They seek out where the ermine has his den in the snow, and then they go there, and they take filth and daub it around the entrance to the den. And then they find the tracks and set the dogs on the tracks. And then the ermine is overtaken and begins to make its way to the den. And when it comes to the entrance of its den, rather than to enter into the den and spoil its white coat of fur, smelling the stench of the filth that's there, the ermine is willing instead to turn and face the dogs and stain its coat with its own blood and die. Purity is dearer than life in that sense. And if a little animal can have some instinct by nature in it in that way, why is it that we can't be more careful in how we live and how we guard the dearest things that God has given to us, integrity and honesty and purity? We ought to be so careful. I, I remember once reading a thing by Gilbert Chesterton, a great British writer. He told a sort of parable of a, of a, a vessel that had made a voyage out into the South Seas and it passed by an island out there. And there were a great number of people on this island and they could be seen from the uh, seagoing vessel uh, all playing and working and, and having a grand time. Uh, they were enjoying life. They were following industrious occupations. They were fine. Now the island was lifted up out of the water by sheer cliffs, and there was a great fence all the way around it. And then the voyage was made, uh, the return voyage was made, and the ship passed the same island again many months later. And all of the people were huddled together in the very center of the island, and they all looked sad and disgruntled, and their countenances were downcast. And somehow communication was made with the island and someone said, what's wrong? Why do you all look so sad when we passed here before you looked so happy? And one of the islanders said, well, you know, there has been this great fence all the way around our little island. And the fence was there to keep us from falling off into the sea, from going off the cliff 
while we were playing and working. But one day we all fell to talking, and we thought that this fence was somehow hinging us in like animals, and so we decided by an election that we would cut down the fence and toss it into the sea. And so the railings were all taken down and tossed over into the sea. And now the people were afraid to go about their games and about their work and to allow their children to run and play for fear that they would fall over. Now a great many of the laws of God, the Ten Commandments are right like that railing. They are meant to protect us from ourselves, to keep us from doing harm to our natures. God has put them there for a very real and good reason. And when we live in obeyance to them, we, we find what God means for us to find in life. And if we come along, no matter who it is, no matter whether it's the court or what's done in the colleges or what's acceptable to the contemporary society in which we live, if these laws are cut down and tossed overboard, then life is going to become filled with fear and anxiety. Life is going to be meaningless to us. We will have rubbed out God from our lives and wake up to find ourselves lonely and afraid. Now this woman was one who had lost her purity. And as I have said, I think that in despair she heard Jesus and believed that in Jesus there was hope for her. And so she sought out Jesus and she walked into Simon the Pharisee's courtyard and out to where Jesus was sitting at table. And you can almost hear the murmur of conversation that must have rippled through the crowds of people who were eating when this woman came into their presence. And oh my, if you could have seen Simon the Pharisee, you would have really seen something. You see, this woman goes straight over to where Jesus is and falls down at Jesus' feet. And when Simon the Pharisee sees her, he is embarrassed to the hilt. He thinks to himself, why in the world did I ever ask that fanatic to come here and eat in my home? This will be the scandal of all of the city. Everyone will be talking about this. Just look at this scene that's taking place right here in my own courtyard. Look at it. That brazen witch has walked into my own courtyard. And then he can scarcely contain himself. This woman stoops at the feet of Jesus. She didn't care what they said. She didn't have any pride anymore. She didn't care what they were whispering. She didn't care about their snickers or their laughs. She saw hope in the face of Jesus. And she determined that she would go to him. And she fell down at his feet. Every Jewish woman had a little vial about her neck of perfume. It was the costliest possession that she had. It was called an alabaster, and inside was some precious perfume. Sometimes the perfume was worth more than its weight in silver. And she took this perfume, this little vial, and broke it and poured it out on the feet of Jesus. And then she reached out with her hand. This woman, remember, who has been impure and immoral, she reached out and touched the feet of Jesus. And somehow when she 
touched his flesh. She could no longer contain her emotions. And the hot tears began streaming down her face. They rolled off her cheeks and onto the feet of Jesus, and she was confused by it all, and she took the tresses of her hair and began to wipe the tears away from his feet. And then she wept all the more. The deeps were broken up inside her. Her shoulders must have been shaking as she sobbed her heart out at the feet of Jesus. Now then, had she come into this church tonight and made such a display of emotion as that, we would have said how utterly unpresbyterian. Oh, this can't be. How embarrassing it all is. This extravagant, inordinate display of emotion. I don't know why so many people are afraid of emotion when it comes to their faith in the Lord. When you come face to face with Jesus Christ, if you reached out and touched his feet tonight and realized the weight of your sin, believe you me, there would be emotion that would surge up. Feeling is basal to religion, said William Ernest Hawking, and he is right. I used to, we used to have a professor at Montreat Anderson College who got on my nerves no end because he was always decrying anything of an emotional element in the preaching of the gospel. And the farcical thing about it all was this learned musician from Philadelphia was simply wild about the operas of Wagner. And anyone who knows anything about music and knows anything about Richard Wagner knows that it's, his operas are nothing but emotion. It's all right to have emotion, he thought, in music, but all wrong to have it in your faith in Jesus Christ. And some people have a great fear of it. I once lived across the street from a woman who had no emotion at all. I could tell you her name. Her brothers were very good friends of mine. Her father was a doctor in our town. Years ago in the 1930s, she had become seriously deranged by a mental illness, and they couldn't could not do anything with her. She had to be often held in restraint. And something had to be done. This was before the advent of psychochemistry and the tranquilizing agents, which have brought a great deal of merciful relief to people in that condition. And so they took her to the city of Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, they performed an operation known as a prefrontal lobotomy, in which a lobe of the brain is operated on in such a way that the person no longer shows any emotion. And her face was a mask. She was like a gloom. There was no sadness. There was no laughter. I remember when her father died. She didn't shed a tear. She couldn't. She had no emotion. But there was always something frightening about it when I saw it always something very frightening about a person like this. And why do people insist that good Christian faith be divested of emotion? That's nonsense. A person who shows no emotion is sick. 
And it's nothing but normal that emotion should be shown in our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, there is a type of emotionalism that is wrong. When you put the ism to it, you make it emotion for emotion's sake, and this is disgusting. These are the people who wallow on the floor in emotion only because they want the feeling that they get with the emotion, and that's wrong. That's shallow and tawdry, and that's no good. Wallowing in emotion is no good, but normal emotion is all right. I remember very well when John Glenn went out into outer space in that great flight. You remember how it was postponed week after week after week? And then a group of psychiatrists in New York City said that uh, John Glenn would break down, that he couldn't stand the strain of the anxiety of, of waiting and holding and then uh, having these flights postponed one after the other and then finally going. And then finally, when the man was able to go, they began to say that he, he was not normal, that he had nerves of iron and steel. And one of the sweetest things, I cut it out of the newspaper and kept it and showed it to my wife. When he had gone into orbit around the earth, and when he was brought back safely, and when they showed the picture of John Glenn's first encounter with his wife, he had gotten out of a helicopter and he was running to meet her, and she threw her arms around him and his head was over her shoulder and the big tears were streaming down his face. And I didn't read any smart aleck ed editorials about Leaky John or about his emotionalism. We only loved him all the more because we realized how human he was. So don't be afraid of emotion in your faith. Just don't go after emotion for emotion's sake. But don't let anyone tell you that to be an intelligent Christian you have to have your Christianity in an ice box. That's not true. That's not true at all. Emotion gives color to our faith. Intelligence gives form to it. Emotion gives it color. And without that color, it's a dead, lifeless thing. Well, now this Pharisee had that dead, lifeless form of faith. And so he was embarrassed by this woman. Had she come and knelt at his feet, he would have kicked her away. He wouldn't have allowed her to touch him. But then he begins to think. And Jesus hears him think. Jesus can hear you think. He can hear you thinking tonight. He knows the thoughts that are going through your mind. Just like he knew the thoughts that were going through Simon the Pharisee's mind that night. He heard him thinking. And do you know what he was thinking? All of his great speeches within himself, about himself. He began to say about Jesus, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Oh no, Simon the Pharisee wouldn't allow anyone like that to touch him. And then Jesus Jesus reaches out and places his finger on the sore spot on this man's heart. And he says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And in his supercilious tone, you can almost hear him mockingly say, Master, say on. And then Jesus tells him this simple little story. There was a certain creditor. He had two debtors. One owed 500 pence, the other only 50. Neither one of them had anything to pay. And so he forgave them both. 
which therefore of the two will love him most? And then he says, I suppose. There was no need for any supposition. He knew full good and well which one would love the most, the one who had been forgiven most. And Jesus tells him so. And when he finishes this, Jesus turned to that woman. Now we've got to get out of our mind this idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I think sometimes Jesus could speak with a great deal of emotion, of anger. And I think some of it came up within him here. Not a vicious, vile anger like most of us have. Not the anger of wounded pride at all. But the anger that looks upon this man for what he has done wrong. And he says, Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no kiss. But since the time I came in, this woman hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? Why? For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now then, if I asked you one question from this passage of Scripture, how would you answer it? Suppose some person should say to you tonight, how may I know that my sins are forgiven? I'm worried about my sins. How may I know that my sins are forgiven? I can tell you. How much do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus Christ? If you love Jesus Christ, you can have the assurance that your sins are forgiven. This passage of Scripture teaches that plainly. It teaches that because it shows us how greatly he loved us, how greatly he loved us. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Thy faith hath saved thee. Faith in the forgiveness of sin. Go in peace. Great many of the movies that come out of Hollywood are really not very good when they deal with matters of, of religion, and especially when they deal with biblical themes. But one movie that I heartily enjoyed and greatly approve of was the great production of Ben-Hur. I'll never forget seeing that film. And to me, the most amazing thing in that film was that unsurpassable scene of the crucifixion. Oh my, you could see the cruelty of it all. You could see it written over the faces that thronged about the cross. And it never showed the face of Jesus. But when that cross was, when he was being nailed to that cross, you could hear the crunching of the bones as the big spikes were pounded into his flesh and driven into the wood. And it made you know that it was real, that God's Son suffered. And when that cross was reared up into its place and that pole fell into that socket in the earth, 
you could feel your own flesh crawl because you knew that Jesus Christ was suffering. And then there came a great darkness over the earth and it trembled and there was a flash of lightning and the roar of thunder and there was a storm and the rain began to fall and the blood began to come down in little rivulets down the sides of the wood of the cross. And if you saw the film down at the foot of the cross, this blood ran into the water and it all went running away into the soil. And the words of the hymn come to my mind, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And that helps me to know that God loved me and that my sins are forgiven through what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Do you remember the part that's not biblical, but somehow it seems so real of the two women who were lepers and those hideous leprosy all over their faces and the great disfigurement and you could barely stand to look at them. And they were looking toward that cross and the lightning flashed and they cowered their faces back and then they looked at each other and suddenly they were all clean and their skin was white and fresh like the skin of a little child again. And somehow it didn't seem in Congress at all that a miracle would take place or we expect miracles to take place at the cross of Jesus. And when sinners come to that cross, and when they seek his forgiveness, they can know it in a wonderful, wonderful way. Old Alexander White, who was a great preacher at the Free St. George's Church on the west of the south end of Edinburgh, a church that I used to go to a lot, one day was preaching on this very passage of Scripture, and this is a true story. And there was a woman in the city of Edinburgh who was a prostitute. And on a Saturday night, she had determined that she would do away with her life. And she had gone to a chemist, and she had bought a little bottle of arsenic. And then she had gone into her usual Saturday night of revelry that she did not enjoy, but that was her profession. And then she had gotten drunk and had gone to sleep. And when she waked up in the morning, she thought she would take the arsenic and that would be the end of it all. And then she began to hear the tolling of the bells of the churches of Edinburgh. The bells ring every Sunday. And somehow those bells tolling reminded her of her childhood and when she had been clean and pure. And she thought that since she was going to take her life anyway, it wouldn't hurt if she went one more time to church. And so she walked down the street and crept in late and took a back pew at Free St. George's in Edinburgh. And Alexander White preached upon this passage of Scripture. And at the close of the sermon, when all the people had left to go away home, there was a knock at the door of the vestry. And Alexander White opened the door. And this woman walked in weeping. 
and placed the bottle of arsenic on his desk and fell at the feet of Jesus that day and gave her heart in saving faith to him. Now that same Jesus who was in Simon the Pharisee's house promised he'd be here with us. He said he'd be wherever two or three believers were met in his name and he's here tonight. It does not matter what your sins may be. They may not be so gross or fleshly as this. Maybe your sins are more like that of Simon the Pharisee, the fact that you do not even know the depth of the wrong that you have done. Maybe there's anger in your heart against other people unjustly. Maybe there's estrangement in your home. Maybe your children, maybe your wife, maybe your husband doesn't even know that you're a Christian by the way that you act and live. And there ought to be a rededication of your life or a giving of your life to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Well, let me say that same Jesus is here tonight. And do you know what he once said? He said, if you are not ashamed of me on earth, I won't be ashamed of you in heaven. And if you would be willing to confess him before men, he promised that he would be willing to confess you before his Father in heaven. So no matter what scale you may weigh yourself upon, if you feel keenly that you're weighed and wanting, and that you've really drifted so far away from the Lord that there needs to be a definite time of decision and coming back to him, or perhaps you've never yet even made any step to commit your life to Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you in Jesus' own name to take your stand with him tonight. The choir is going to sing now. As the choir sings, we're going to stand for a brief prayer. And I'm going to give an invitation for any of you who have never accepted Christ as Savior to walk down this aisle as I've seen hundreds of people do, not in meetings that I've held, but in meetings that I have been in in many parts of the world and in meetings that I have been in too in small churches, not hundreds of them, but many scores of them over the years. Just walk down the aisle and take my hand. That doesn't save you, but that shows that you're not ashamed to make a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ nor to make a meaningful rededication to him. And if you would like to do that tonight, I want to invite you to do so. Let us all stand in prayer, and then the choir will be singing.
Presbyterian churches, many times I do. One reason I justify them is this. Often when Jesus healed a man, he would say, stand up and walk. Or he would say, stretch forth your hand. Or go to the pool and walk. He demanded something of them. He asked for some indication of faith. That's the only reason in the world that I ask you to come forward tonight if you've not accepted Christ as your Savior. We're not going to prolong the invitation long. I don't believe in, in undue pressure on the invitation. But if you do want to take a step for Him, there could be no finer, lovelier thing for you to do than simply step out and walk down the aisle here and take my hand and wait for a moment of instruction and prayer following the service. We won't keep you long. And by doing that show that you want to rededicate your life to Christ as your Lord and Savior or accept Him tonight for the first time as your Savior and Lord. We'll sing only one more stanza of this hymn. And if you feel God leading you to do that, then don't put it off. Just step out and walk down the aisle and settle it once and for all right now tonight. Let us sing. Thank you. 